Good evening. Thank you for coming. It's good to see everyone here. Yes, hello. Just uh, before I forget, just thinking about uh, Claire Wallace especially. Um, she does seem to be getting better. She's over at Shans now getting some medications that's suppressing her immune system. So we were kind of thinking, uh, Steve had suggested maybe limit visits, but uh, Josh just texted and right now they're recommending actually no visitors um, for the time being. So just be mindful of that. But at the same time, keep thinking about her and praying for her. And, uh, but looks like numbers are getting better this week. So hopefully things are heading in the right direction there. So that's wonderful news. Okay. Welcome back, or uh, welcome. If this is you weren't here last week, if you missed last week, please go to um, our either website or podcast, and you can listen to these classes on the uh, the GSR uh, podcast. So, so check that out. I think we did talk about some things last week uh, on the introduction that we won't talk about tonight, and uh, would be important to follow along there. So. Um, just to review a few of the main points, I think when you look at this book, what's the, why are we even studying Hosea? Right? It's this book from uh, the Old Testament, 700 plus BC, um, but I think we, we know that the, the Word of God is living and active and humans haven't changed. And guess who else hasn't changed? Jehovah has not changed. And so the relationships and the, the teachings and the things we learn in Hosea about God and his people there are still completely applicable to us today as far as the relationships and who God is. And so as we talked about last week, kind of learning to know God better so we can love him more and fear him more is, is still the goal of studying this, this book that's quite ancient. The main point of Hosea, I would say, is just learning that God is faithful in his loving kindness. And I use those words specifically because that loving kindness is that word I mentioned last week, that hesed word that is translated in various different words. But I think this faithful love is one way we would express that. And that's who God is. It's not just what he does, but it's who he is. And he has a desire to save his people. And that's his faithful, loving kindness to save his people, to, to bring them back to him. And that's in contrast to our faithlessness, our disloyalty, and our lack of love for him. And that's the, he keeps emphasizing that over and over. He chooses us, but he's begging us to choose him. And that's the situation that he was pleading with these people uh, in this, you know, actually a very emotional book in Hosea. And that's still the case today, that he has done everything he can to express that to us and to save us and show us his loving kindness. And so when we look at some of this passage, it's about Israel and the destruction, the discipline, the wrath of God that's going to come upon them. God's goal in that is never to just wipe these people out and be done with them. It is always to discipline to repentance. And the goal is always to bring people to change their ways. As some of you are in my Ezekiel class, and this Ezekiel was 150 years later, but that's what God said multiple times in that book. I don't desire the death of anyone. I want you to repent and live. And so that's the point here. He's not bringing destruction on Israel because he's mad and doesn't want to save them anymore. No, this discipline 
is still a means to restore. And it's still a way for God to show his faithful, loving kindness to these people because it will bring about some degree of repentance and restoration for some people. The cycle of restoration is something we're going to see throughout this book. We're going to see it in chapter one this week. We'll see it in chapter two next week. We'll see it in chapter three the week after that. Chapter four through six is another cycle of restoration. And so as we go through that, we'll see this repeated uh, five or six times throughout the book. There's a cycle of God pointing out all the things that they've done wrong, but then also pointing out his desire and his goal to bring them back and his providential plan to bring about restoration. God will bring about restoration for a remnant at least. And so that's, that plan is there, and we are basking in the, the fruit of that plan today. And so we can look back and see how this all came about. Hosea's book shows us what, God's, what God loving us looks like, and more importantly, feels like. God puts it in this emotional terms. He demonstrates how he feels about his relationship with Israel over time through their history by making his prophet live out the heartbreaking marriage to a prostitute. And so God's going to refer to historical things in through Hosea. He's going to refer to the history of his people in different ways. He'll refer to it by a word, by a phrase, and so we're going to try to point those out as we go through. This first chapter will have quite a bit of that. Hosea's book's also very poetic. If you're not very poetic, then this could be a tough read, so we'll try to work through that with, with a lot of poetic style using metaphors and wordplay. Um, so we'll see this word, and chapter 1 is going to point those out. So as we read through chapter 1 together, pay attention to those things, the wordplay, the metaphors, the historical references. But let's go ahead and read through chapter 1 again together going to get out my scroll. I would encourage everyone to make a scroll of their favorite book. All right, let's read. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, in the, son, in the days of King Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel. When Jehovah first spoke through Hosea, Jehovah said to Hosea, go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Jehovah. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And Jehovah said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Then Jehovah said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have pity or mercy on the house of Israel or forgive them, but I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by Jehovah their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then Jehovah said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet... The number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can neither be measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, one leader, and they shall take possession of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brother Ami, this is Hosea 2.1, and to your sister Ruhamah. I think most people think that the 
thought continues there on into chapter 2, verse 1. So again, we talked last week. If you didn't hear that, how, how did we get to this point? And so I went through the history. But let's just look what we can here in this passage. As you look at that passage, the first thing you see is when, again, the kings, and I'm going to skip over that introductory stuff about the kings and those names that we just read through and encountered. But the first thing you see is when God first speaks to Hosea, that's what it says, what does he tell him? And so it's presented in that way that the first thing God tells Hosea to do is go and take a wife. But it's not the normal choice for a spouse, is it? It's go take a wife of harlotry, of whoredom. Now, we know Gomer uh, became a prostitute, but I think there was some conversation. Uh, was she already known for this? Was this something that she already was? Or was she just a woman of the times, a girl that's grown up in this culture, so she was destined to become a prostitute? It was even part of Baal worship, right? I personally believe it, and it doesn't really matter. We don't, we don't know that for sure. We're not told, but I personally believe she was already a whore before he married her, mainly because God says, go marry a wife of whoredom, and he went and picked her. <laughs> so there's a very specific thing. Now, had they been, as Jason told us last week, maybe grew up childhood sweethearts and things, but I don't know. I think, I think Hosea knew what she was when he married her. I personally believe that also fits the parallel. What, what's the purpose of this? It's to symbolically show God's relationship with Israel. When we think about God's relationship with Israel, starting in Egypt primarily, did he pick Israel because she was a chaste virgin? Or they, you know, she was so pure and, and righteous that God chose? Well, no, we actually know just the opposite. And when God chose Israel... Were they monotheistic worshipers of Jehovah God? Well, actually, we know they weren't. They were already people that had grown up in idolatry and were given to idolatry. How do we know they were given to idolatry? Well, as soon as Moses went up on the mountain and was gone for a little bit, what was their natural inclination? They, they worshiped an idol, right? And Aaron himself built this idol. And so I think we see, to me, it fits more that God's saying, this is what I've lived through. You go do that. It makes sense to me that Hosea went and chose a wife who was already living the life of a prostitute, knowing full well who she was and what she was doing. We don't need to know that for sure, but I think it fits the story better. And how does that apply to us today? Does God choose us because we're so good and pure? that he can't help but save us? Well, we, we know that's not true. So again, I think as we look at the parallels here in application to us, we got to think of ourselves, that we are horrible people, as Jason put it, and that God chooses us even yet while we are sinners and enemies and against what he's trying to do, God chose us and Jesus died for us. And so I think the parallel fits well that Hosea went and picked a prostitute to be his wife. And what does it say that happened next? Gomer bore him a son. A son was born. And God, Jehovah, chooses to name that son, right? Names him Jezreel. All this is symbolic, right? So there's this name, Jezreel. What does that mean? It means God sows or God scatters. It's just the word God and sowing or scattering put together. Jezreel. So we can know that what that means, but for them, that name carried a lot of significance, didn't it? 
Does anybody remember? I'll throw this out. Anything that happened in Jezreel in the Bible. Because Jezreel for this northern kingdom of Israel was a very important place. It's the name of both a valley and a city. And I forgot to get my clicker. I can't talk about Jezreel without having a, uh, a map. Let's see. There we go. Just to, just to orient us to Jezreel. So here's Judah, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Dead Sea. So this is the southern kingdom. Once you get to, where were the two uh, calves? One was at Bethel, right? The southern golden calf of Jeroboam was at Bethel. The other one was up at Dan, which is up in this area. Dan's not on this map, but up in the Kedesh area there. So this is Israel. Here is Jezreel, the town of Jezreel. You see that? We'll zoom in a little bit. Oops, on this next one. So this is just a blown up map of this. And I think when, when Hosea says Jezreel names his son that, this is what he's naming him after. Look here, this is Mount, so this is Jezreel right here, the Valley of Jezreel, the Plain of Esdralon. You have Mount Carmel. Anything happen there? Megiddo, Mount Gilboa, Mount Tabor, and then, incidentally, you have that little town right on the edge, on the northern edge. Something happened there, didn't it? So as you think back through history, let me just run through some things that happened in that valley. Uh, oh, I would point this out, I'm sorry. See this blue line? This blue line is the common route for armies to travel. And large, I mean, that was the common travel pathway through this area. So if you were trying to get, let's say, from Assyria to Egypt, you would bring your army right down through here, right through the Valley of Jezreel and right down the plains. Or if you were coming from Egypt, trying to get to Assyria or Babylon, as Josiah found out later, you'd come up from the hollow. Does that make sense? Kind of see how that flows? And that valley became known as a very fertile farmland, but it was the battleground of Israel. That's where the battles were fought. Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites, King Jabin. Remember Sisera with the tent peg through his head? Where did that happen? Valley of Jezreel. How about Gideon? What did he do? Defeated some Midianites, right? Where did that happen? Valley of Jezreel. That's correct. You know, you get Where did Saul and Jonathan die? Philistines came, attacked them. Saul and Jonathan died right on the slopes of Mount Gilboa in the Valley of Jezreel. That's where they died. Elijah did something there, didn't he? Remember? Mount Carmel. He went up on Mount Carmel and the fire came down, but where did he go to kill the 850 prophets? He took them right down to the valley of Jezreel here at the bottom by the Kishon Brook. That's where Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal after that confrontation. And what did he do then? He outran Ahab to the town of Jezreel. Why were they going there? Because the city of Jezreel was where Ahab and Jezebel lived when they weren't in Samaria, their capital. Who else lived in the town of Jezreel in the district of that area? Naboth. Remember that guy named Naboth? He had a little vineyard there that Ahab really wanted. And so Ahab killed him. Jezebel had him killed, I should say. Jezebel killed him. So what happened next there? Well, this guy named Jehu, we talked about last week. Jehu was anointed by God to take vengeance. Where did he kill the king of Judah and the king of Israel. It was actually in the valley of Jezreel. It was actually in the farmland and vineyard of Naboth, which was right by the town of Jezreel. Are you seeing some pattern here? Jehu went into the town of Jezreel, and who did he kill there? 
Who's with me? Throw her down. And Jezebel was thrown down into the streets of the town of Jezreel and died there and was eaten by dogs in, in that prophecy. And then finally, the Assyrian army came right down that blue line, marched right through there to come to Samaria and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Less than 20 years later, they came right back down that way to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. But Hezekiah prayed a prayer, and something happened, right? But where did that, they went right through that same valley. So that's, just as we think about this name, now that's all after Hosea, of course, uh, but Hosea went over with Hezekiah's reign, and so we know that these all were the things that were happening. Just a couple more to round this out. Um, Josiah went out, and he was killed at Megiddo. Megiddo is on the southern rim. It's a fortress hill right there on the southern end. That's where he went out to meet the, the king of Egypt, taking his army up toward uh, uh, Assyria and Babylon. So he was killed there. And then incidentally, there's a valley at, of the hill of Megiddo, which is Armageddon in Revelation 16. Guess where Armageddon is? Right here. This is Armageddon. And so when you read that, and you know, there's a lot made out of Armageddon, but it is mentioned in Revelation 16 as where all the armies are gathered together that God's going to come and destroy. And he brings that whole story right back together in Jezreel. So when, he, when Jehovah ch chooses that name for this firstborn son, he had a lot of things in mind, didn't he? There was a lot of significance to this name of God sows and God scatters. And so we see that. And, and when he named him that, the people there would have had a lot of those historical contexts in their minds when they heard, you named your son Jezreel? And that would have been a very, probably uncommon and not a great name for a child at that time. And we'll see this. The word play in Hosea, that idea that God sows or God scatters will keep occurring throughout the book several times. In chapter 2, he'll use that exact word, and you'll see that next week with Jason. But throughout the book, this idea of sowing and scattering will be referred to multiple times, both in a positive and negative sense. So I think that word keeps coming up, and, and it starts right here at the beginning when God says, your firstborn son, name him Jezreel. And what does he specifically say he's going to do based on that name? He's going to punish the house of Jehu, for the bloodshed of Jezreel, but he's going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so with that firstborn son and that name of Jezreel, well, the, the meaning that God specifically attaches to that is that the house of Israel is coming to an end. They are going to be judged. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Incidentally, both Saul and Ahab were killed by archers in the valley of Jezreel. So it's interesting, you know, think about the way they used to fight battles and both those things that happened right there. Okay, let's just, for the sake of time, we'll move on. If you all have questions, I'm, I promise I'm going to leave a few minutes at the end to have some discussion, but there is a lot of things to talk about. So from here, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Now this is where we have a little change of phrase there. And so we have Hosea and Gomer are going to have a daughter, but the indication is, She's not Hosea's. And if you look at chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5, which you read for next week's, but 
God says they are children of harlotry. And so he makes reference to no compassion because they're children of harlotry. So that seems, again, to indicate that this daughter was not Hosea's child. It was a child of some other man that Gomer was out selling herself to on the streets. And so God says, Jehovah named her again. He said, name her Lo Ruhamah. And so that means no mercy, no compassion, no pity was the way the, the scroll uh, text read. And so we have this second meaningful name given there. Probably not Hosea's child. And so God says, I'm done. He declares that he is finished having compassion. When we did the introduction last week, I'll just refer to that. In, in the passage about Jeroboam II, it actually says through Elijah, God prophesied that he would have compassion during the days of Jeroboam. But once those days were done, God says, I have no more compassion. My, my mercy, my pity for Israel has run out and I'm done. And so as you see there, he makes a distinction as well. So I think as you read this, I'll have no compassion on the house of Israel, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them. And so here's just another declaration made through this memorial name given to this child that God is done with Israel. But with this comes also that distinction with Judah, that he is going to still have compassion. And so that distinction is going to be based on some faithfulness, some repentance, some true worship of God still occurring in the southern kingdom. Whereas in the north, from their very beginning, once Jeroboam set up those two calves, there was never a good king in leadership. And then Ahab, as if that was a trivial thing, he brought in Baal worship, and so the, the land was given to that. We can think back to Elijah when he ran away and, and uh, felt like he was the only one left, and God told him, remember how many God said he had? God said, I still have 7,000, but that was probably out of 7 million. And so you think about the number, I'm, I'm just throwing out, it was millions and millions of people lived in, that, in, in Israel at that time, and so 7,000 was comforting to Elijah at the time. But at the same time, there were very, very few people still in Israel worshiping Jehovah and, and devoting their hearts to him. And where was this fulfilled? So I think when you look at this prophecy that he was given, this, this is a really a direct reference to what I just referred to with the Assyrian army. Assyria comes down and they overthrow the northern kingdom. 722 B.C. is, is the traditional date that that occurred where where uh, Samaria was sacked, and all the people, actually almost all of them, were run out of that area. They were displaced, and that's what Assyria did with the nations they, they took over, was they would just completely displace those people from their land and bring in other people from other places, just to disrupt the very fabric of their culture and society. Uh, and so that's what happened there. And uh, as I mentioned, Assyria came back to take over Judah, and, and that's such a great story. It's in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 36 and 37 is where that occurs, where it talks about um, Hezekiah praying to God and, and putting that letter from Sennacherib on, on the temple uh, steps, I believe, is where it was. And did, God says here, I'll deliver them by Jehovah, not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. You remember how God delivered Judah from Assyria? One angel, one angel went out in one night and killed how many soldiers? 185,000. And so God said, I'm going to have mercy. 
because of David. You know, God's relationship with David and that covenant with David carries through that southern kingdom of Judah, but also because Hezekiah turned to him. Hezekiah restored some worship. And so that faithful repentance uh, paid off with compassion and mercy from God. And what that looked like was 185,000 soldiers from Assyria dying in one night by one angel. And when they got up the next morning, they left and did not come back. So, and after that, actually, the Assyrian, um, Assyrian king was assassinated by his own sons, and, and that kingdom just gradually fell apart and faded until Babylon took over. Okay, so that's kind of low Ruhama. Let's keep on going there with verse 8. And when she had weaned low Ruhama, so however length of time that was, six months, a year, two years, some, some period of time there, she conceived and gave birth to another son. So again, that same phrase is used there, seems to indicate probably not Hosea's. She conceived and gave birth, not bore him a son, as it said with Jezreel. And Jehovah said, name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So when you think about that phrase, that's one of the worst phrases that you can hear out of God's mouth. When you think about the whole, the whole Bible and all the revelation we have, one of the overarching themes of the entire revelation is this statement when Jehovah says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. And that's repeated multiple times. Genesis 3 Verse 8 sort of has that, right, where God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, that fellowship where God dwells among his people. You see that in Exodus 29, 45 and 46, where God says, they're my people and I will dwell among them. Leviticus 26, verse 11 and 12 has that same phrase as he's talking about that. These are my people. I am your God that brought you up out of Egypt and I will dwell among you. And then uh, from Ezekiel, which again, that was written later, I know, but the same message is there where God says that more than once in that book, that that's the point. I will be their God. They will be my people and I will dwell among them. And that's used in Ezekiel 37, 27 of the messianic prophecy. That's the, that's the messianic kingdom. My people. And I dwell with them and, and, and among them. And that is exactly what we enjoy today. And so here, as God names this third child, the son, he names them not my people and I am not your God. And so that's kind of, you know, just, again, the final, the final stroke they're saying. We are breaking our covenant relationship that spans back through history, doesn't it? So from Mount Sinai and the covenant they made there to, for them to be his people, and he would dwell with them until now. He still, don't miss this. He still is in a relationship with these people. And they are awful people. They are horrible people, right? And yet God is just now saying, I've finally run out of mercy. I've run out of compassion. And so one of the best things I think we can learn here is just how long-suffering and patient God can be. And we, we know that in some passages in other places, but don't miss that point. We're getting the end of the story here. But for over 200 years, God has continued to send them prophets, to ask for their repentance, to beg them to come back into relationship with him and they have not. And so finally with Hosea at this time in the you know, late 700s, he is drawing the line here. But he still has 13 more chapters to talk about it too. So 
This isn't the final stroke, but it certainly is a clear indication. So Hosea's family, what do they represent? They represent the state of Jehovah's relationship with Israel, right? So you have Gomer, the mother. She's a whore. She's a prostitute. What's the difference, incidentally? This will come up in chapter 2 especially. What's the difference between an adulteress and a prostitute? Or it doesn't have to be a female. An adulterer and a male prostitute. But just think about that. What's the difference? Well, an adulteress, oh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's kind of, well, it's, but it's, right, right, one gets money and, but who is it for, right? So usually when you think of someone committing adultery, they have fallen in love with somebody else and there's a love for another person and so they're giving themselves to another person, right? But what, what's the prostitute giving themselves to? It's self-serving there, right? Prostitutes are giving themselves to someone else, but for their own benefit. They are literally selling themselves for their, they want something in return. So it's, it's not a loving, devoted relationship with someone else who isn't your spouse. No, you don't love these people, but you just want something from them, and so you're willing to sacrifice one of the most important things that you have your purity, and your chastity, you're willing to sacrifice that for your own benefit in some other way, right? You see that difference? And when you read chapter 2, God will point that out multiple times. That's why they're prostitutes. That's why he calls them whores. Not because they fell in love with Baal. They just wanted stuff for themselves, and they were willing to do whatever it took. And what did it take? Well, it took hurting God. It took them turning their back on Jehovah and his covenant relationship, turning their back on his faithful love that he'd shown them, turning their back on the true and living God who had displayed himself multiple times throughout their history. But that didn't give them what they wanted, right? And so they turned their back on that for their own benefit of some, what, gold and flax, and you'll see what he says in chapter 2. But that's why he says, you're not adulterers. You're not adulteresses, you're prostitutes because of that relationship that they showed God. And then the firstborn son, Jezreel. So he represents the impending doom, right? The impending defeat and destruction of that kingdom. God is going to scatter them. Now, what did that mean for the northern kingdom? They, yeah, they were literally scattered. Those people were uprooted, and, and individually and in families, they were just scattered out of that land. And so we have this idea of going out of the land as a scattering in judgment. So that's why I say there's this wordplay with that, that that was, a, that was a thing against them. God was going to scatter them. But that same word, we'll see, can be used in the positive way. But for them, that's what that firstborn son represented. The second child, the daughter, Lo Ruhama, that represented the end of God's mercy. His compassion, his forgiveness, his pity for them was at an end. He could bear it no longer. And then, finally, the third child, the third, the son, lo ami. And so that is that end of the covenant relationship. We, we are not in that relationship anymore. I reject you. You are not my people. I am not your God. And so, at that point, the, the state of the union, so to speak, between Jehovah and Israel is completely broken down. 
And so that's what the family of Hosea represented. Now, just don't miss that. <laughs> this is a real person, a real man who was living, and God, Jehovah, who he was serving as a prophet, chose him to live this life with his family. Is this the family that you would choose to serve God? Think about that. Don't, you know, just don't ever be ungrateful for what we get to do to serve God today. God's chosen us not to live this life and thank him for that. But also, don't miss the point. These names were given for purposes and for meanings. Let's move on just to finish the chapter with that very important word there in verse, verse 10. And I think it's, it's one of the most important words in the Bible, right? But, yet, and over and over we see that word coming from our God, Jehovah, as he says, but the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. And look at the end there. He says, where it said to them, you're not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. You are children of mine again. So we see several promises here as we read earlier. So in spite of this current break in their relationship, the schism that's going to send these people off, scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, God is still faithful in his loving kindness, even for them. He's not doing that to them to get rid of them. He still desires to save them. And by this punishment on them, it's finally come to this, but he still is trying to bring about their repentance and a desire to save these people and restore them. And so he still has a plan for restoration. And that's what I think we see here. I've referred to this several times, and I'm going to just take a moment. If you turn over to Exodus 34, this, this is not just what God does, it's who he is. And I've referred to this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I would say this, this little passage in your Bible is a good one to mark in some way. Turn the corner on your page down or something. Because this is one of those places where God to Moses, and God and Moses had a very special relationship. And Moses says, I want to see you. I want, let me see you. And this was after he'd come back up from breaking the tablets and come back up to the mountain. And he says, and, and so Moses knew Jehovah in a different way than almost anyone else that's ever lived, right? But God shows himself. But then look what God said. He's going to show himself to Moses uh, in verse 6. It says, Then Jehovah passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. There's our two words, has said, and, and truth is uh, that faithfulness. Look at verse 7. Who keeps has said, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And so here's where God actually says, all right, Moses, I'm going to tell you who I am and show you who I am. But I think it's really important to keep that. We'll see that repeated several times. But those phrases occur throughout the Psalms. It's what Jonah says when he talks to God, says, I know you. He quotes this verse. It's what Joel has these same verses. And so when we see and 
think who Jehovah is, well, who does that sound like for us? That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is, because he is Jehovah God in the flesh. And so that's just a passage I say, keep in your mind. So when we see this end of this, go back to Hosea chapter 1, and when we hear what God has in store, it really is, this is who he is, his character. He wants to show faithful love, and he wants to save, and he wants people to be his people. And so he says in verse 11, the sons of Judah, the sons of Israel will be gathered together again. And they will appoint for themselves one leader. And they will go up from the land, or they go up to the land. That's, that phrase can be translated either way. For great will be the day of Jezreel. And so he throws that name back in there, which means God sows or God scatters. And so this is a messianic prophecy as he talks to them. All right, I'm, I'm scattering you, but here's the plans I have for you. Plans for your good to bring about good for you and not for your destruction, right? As we have that phrase in Jeremiah of Judah later. But this was his plans for their good. They will be his people, his sons again. They'll be numberless. In verse 10, it tells us that. So they will recover from this destruction. Verse 11 talks about the reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms specifically there, but the reunion of all of the children of Israel together. One leader going up to the land in that great day of Jezreel, where God is sowing and scattering. And so here it's a positive thing, right? That same phrase is used in a positive sense. When did that happen? Oh, I'm sorry, and I, I keep skipping chapter 2, verse 1, Gerald, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you'll say to your brothers, Ami, my people. And you'll say to your sisters, compassion, mercy, Ruhama. And so I think that completes that phrase where this, you'll, he uses these three names here to symbolize what he's got planned for the future. That yes, you will be sown as seed. You will be my people and you will have compassion and mercy. So I think when you think about that, when was that day of reunion? under one leader, with God sowing his people. It's hard not to think of a certain feast of first fruits, first fruits, right? That's what Pentecost is. Pentecost is the feast of weeks. It's the first fruits. And so when we look back at this through time, through the lens of Jesus and the kingdom that came, we can see that this is a reference there to that harvest that came about, that reunion that came about, that new, new family that was started there. This is God's people being gathered together. And that was all based on grace, mercy, compassion through God. And let's read that. If you turn over, Jeremiah 31 is going to be some reading for next week. But let's just read one New Testament passage where it refers to this. You could read 1 Peter 2, but I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 6. And just see how this is played out in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you're there, if you're not, that's fine. Just listen along. Verse 15 starts, What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So you see here, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, to these Gentiles, mainly, who'd come out of the world, who'd been welcomed into God's plan for salvation. He refers back to these very same phrases that we are reading here in Hosea to show, about, to show God's promises and fulfillment of those promises and how that looks in our life today. We are the temple of the living God today. We are the people of God, the family of God. And we are called children of God today. So Hosea's tragic family life was a message for them, but it was also a clear message for us. I think taking that to heart is very important, just like the application. I don't even have to make an application. Paul says it so well in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 there. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. I'm going to stop there. Got five minutes or so left. Any comments or questions or things I left out? picture a Jewish feast with people from all those nations coming together, and what they heard that day was finally the fulfillment of these promises that they'd been hearing about and waiting for for centuries. That's really an awesome thought. But yeah, they, so from there, they would have scattered, right? Which made me think of 1 Peter. Uh, you know, I referred to 1 Peter 2. That's the other place where this is directly quoted is 1 Peter 2, where he says, in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Uh, for you, verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter uses those phrases from the names of Hosea's children to talk about us as Christians today. But who did Peter write that letter to, right? That's what made me think of that. He writes to the dispersion of mainly Jews, but also all Christians throughout all these different areas, as he says there at the beginning of that letter. So you think about God sowing and scattering and Jezreel. What was the spiritual fulfillment of Jezreel? Well, it's actually us. We are still fulfilling that idea of God sowing and scattering. That's fulfilled in the word being sown and scattered. That's fulfilled in us being scattered. That's fulfilled in the kingdom being scattered. And so it's really, uh, to me, you know, I am a word nerd, but I love that, how God took that word, he named that child that, he had a valley, all these things, but that all was culminating in the spiritual meanings that we are a part of even today as we sit here and still read those words from Hosea in 750 B.C. Any other comments or points? Gerald, what did I lead at? But <laughs> Shown us in the Old Testament, there are times he just 
Peter makes that point in his letter too. If you want some supplemental reading for Hosea, read 1 Peter. <laughs> I think specifically because he talks about judgment starting first with the household of God, right? And uh, so it's suffering for that name. Yeah, there's, and once you start seeing these things, there's just so many references that tie this together with, with our, our new covenant and the kingdom we have today. Did I leave out anything, Gerald? Gerald is going to teach in two weeks. Um, Jason and I will both be at camp. So next week, Jason Powell is going to teach chapter 2. So read chapter 2. I would encourage you to read Jeremiah chapter 31. That's, that, I read that uh, recently just preparing for this class and just was struck by how Jeremiah 31 just fits in with uh, Hosea. Just, and it ties a lot of these things we just talked about together. But uh, read chapter 2, Jeremiah 31, if you'd like to. Then uh, Gerald's going to cover chapter 3 when Jason and I are at camp here in two, two Wednesday nights from now. So that's the upcoming plans. Be reading and studying and thinking. And uh, let me know if there's any questions. Why don't we end with a word of prayer here to close class tonight. Jehovah God, we thank you for letting us know you, for letting us call you by name, letting us see you uh, even in the flesh as you walked among us here on earth, as Jesus came to be our sacrifice and to be that one leader that united us all together. We thank you for this revelation that you gave to Hosea so, so many millennia ago even, and that we can still read today and find encouragement and uh, comfort and peace and, and to just once again revel in the love and the loving kindness and your faithfulness that you've shown and help us to understand each day how much you desire to save us, to be with us, and to restore our relationship with you forever. Thank you for that, and help us be encouraged to perfect holiness in the fear of you and to love you more each day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.